I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's no one like me. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's no one like me. And I cause all things to work together for good. Romans 8, 28. How many here, that's a favorite verse of yours? Yeah, lots of us, right? Every service has been the case. God causes all things to work together for good. We want to talk about the implications of that this morning because the magnitude of it is absolutely breathtaking in its scope. A commitment from God, an infallible guarantee that completely encompasses your life. So you're going to ask yourself a question this morning. When God says things like that, do I take him at his word? Do I believe God? What do I believe about God when he says things like that? We, we really have to take our time as we're working through this. Because in essence, what God is saying, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's saying, I've got you. God's got you. And I know that's not great English. If it was great English, you'd be saying, the heavenly father holds you in his everlasting arms. But I like God's got you. God's got you. And you're going to hear that come up multiple times this morning. God predetermined in eternity past that you would come into relationship with him. And one day, you'll be made fully like the image of Jesus Christ. So God's got you in the in-between time. While you're now here on this planet waiting for eternity, God says, I've got you. I want to share an example with you that will kind of bring this to light to help you to understand where we're going with Romans 8.28. The reality is found in something that Paul experienced. We understand, according to something he wrote in 2 Corinthians, that God gave him a view of eternity, something he was allowed to see that no one else had ever seen before. And he said, I can't even write about it. I can't talk about it. I've been forbidden from speaking about it. And the image was so magnificent, it caused me to really swell up with pride. So you find him talking about it in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, in order to keep him in a position where God would hold him in a place of humility, God had to do something. Look with me on the screen at 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Do you notice he said to say that twice in one sentence? Because pride was an issue. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If God's objective is about making you more like the image of Christ, to make you more and more and more like Jesus, you understand very quickly, like Paul, there is purpose in the pain there's purpose in the things that you're going through so that you can understand when God says, I cause all things to work together for good, there's a reason for some of the stuff that you're going through. Romans 8, 28, and we know 
that God causes all things to work together for good, finish it out, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul is stating, in essence, the basis for a really confident expectation for you in relation to your future, things that you can have great confidence about. Last week, we talked about how verses 24 through 29 form this core of confidence of things that God's doing to accomplish His purposes. If you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, let me catch you up really, really quickly, and maybe this will be familiar to you if you were here last week, but look at His purposes. You found in verse 24 that He stated He's going to bring about a regeneration, His purposes that He's going to make all things new. And so Paul wrote in verse 24, in hope we have been saved. In hope of what, Paul? In hope of that future regeneration when God will make everything new. Look at the second purpose. His purpose is that he's intimately aware. He's aware of all your needs, everything that's going on. We talked about that a lot last week. And he does respond. And now this week, we find his purpose is that he's working in the midst of all things, all the things that are going on together for good. And that leads us into the fourth one, his purpose that he's conforming us. In the midst of all this, he's conforming us into the image of Jesus. See, there's purpose. Now, that requires something of you. It requires that you define good, the good that God is producing by his terms of good and not by my terms of good, not by your terms of good. Because we're tempted to define good the way that we think good should fit. we got to go by God's terms because He knows your greatest good is to know Him to the fullest degree possible. So He's going to do things. And as a result, in the midst of this final good, He may allow you to go through some financial struggles, some relationship struggles, emotional struggles. He may even take you through some physical struggles in pursuit of this final good. And sometimes it may not even be about you, but maybe the person who's watching you, trying to learn and know more about this God whom you follow. So in the big picture of what Paul's describing here, he says, we know all things, the bitter things and the sweet things. Got some sweet things in your life right now? You got some bitter things in your life right now? God's in the midst of that. All those are working together for our ultimate good. And we don't mean by that our immediate good because that's what we're tempted to look for. In other words, all hardship is endurable, even the most damnable circumstance you might be going through right now. Even the hardest thing you might be encountering. God says, I got this. So you find next week, especially when you go into verse 29, there's a massive foundation underneath these four core purposes that you're looking at. There's a foundation that's kind of like a huge pillar underneath it. And the pillar is this, that God knows all things. God is omniscient. And so when you come to verse 29, it says, He even foreknew those who would come to salvation because God knows everything If you believe God knows everything this morning, say amen. Amen. So he's omniscient. You understand the word omniscient means he knows everything. There's nothing that escapes his attention. So those four core purposes are built on God knowing. Go with me into verse 28 and let's break it down. Verse 28, part A. And we know three words with absolute clarity and certainty. Paul's making a statement here that is not a personal opinion. He's not saying, this is just how I feel. 
I'm setting forth reality based on the Word of God. I'm encouraging you to get your notes out of your bulletin this morning. Maybe write down some of these verses. You may know these things, but I'll bet you got somebody in your life that doesn't. Somebody that needs to be encouraged or maybe needs to see it for the first time. And I want to show you some verses why Paul is stating what he is. And we know. How can we know this, Paul? Well, look at Malachi 3.6 on the screen. Because God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Did you know he's an unchanging God, church? He never changes. There's no shadow of turning in him. So that leads you to Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that a great promise? That's a good one. Thank you, God, for that one. Jesus never changes because he's God. What about the one that we started with this morning, Isaiah 46, 9? I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's no one like me. Finish out the verse. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See what Paul's doing? On God's own authority, the authority of God's word, Paul is saying, we know every aspect of our life, both here on earth and in eternity, it's all in God's hands. Even though it's not always understood, and even though it doesn't always feel like it, we're talking about experience. Experientially, it doesn't always feel like God's got everything under control. And I say experientially because things in and of themselves may not always be good, but God fuses them together because his goal is to bring about good in your life. So I've taught you before, and if you've been at New Hope any length of time, you know we lean into the Greek language a fair amount. I want you to look at Romans 28, 828 part B, and look at something that's going on in the Greek language that's really important that may escape your attention. We've talked before that when something is written in the present tense, it means it's a continuing activity of God. You look at the verse and you understand there's no past tense there. There's nothing in the past. It's all present tense. God causes all things to work together for good. That means it's continuing. It's going on right now in your life. It's not a one-time thing. It's God doing it over and over and over and over again, bringing all things together for good. So just hit the pause button right now. This is incredibly reassuring, so just calm your heart. This should just make you want to send up a silent cheer to God like, yes, you got this. You have not bailed on me. See, God's not bailed on you. He's actually working in every circumstance, even ones that are a mystery to you right now. Let's go to the next section of this, God causes. We know that God causes, Paul's saying. Uh, we'll state the obvious. God's the subject of this, right? Now, the reason I say that is because some of the early manuscripts didn't put God in the version. If you hold a King James Bible in your hand right now, or if you have it electronically, you can look at it really quick, and you'll see that God isn't in that sentence. It just says, we know that all things work together for good. They left the God component out of it because everybody understands as you're reading this, things are incapable of independent action. There has to be an activator. Things don't just happen unless you're a fatalist and you think everything's out of control. So Scripture and the modern translations get really clear when they say God is the guarantor. He's the one. He causes everything to culminate in good for a specific group of people. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Now, that means it requires God's action. It requires him to fulfill the promise. So if you're going through something right now that's really, really good or really, really hard, 
Just understand that God is absolutely involved in that because He can't be disinterested. God causes all things to work together for good. So let's go to all things. What's He talking about here? All things, Mark? Really? Everything? Understand what is being expressed here is true biblical confidence in the sovereignty of God. So I'm asking you to ask the question right now, does God have control of every circumstance of your life? Or do you feel like you do? Do you feel like you're the one that's got to manage it all? This is a really important question, how we take those words in all things. Because biblically, all things is utterly comprehensive. It's everything. There's no qualifications. There's no limits. Is God at work in all circumstances of your life? Because this is what the Scripture says. He directs your life in such a way that for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purposes, the outcome is always good. Now, I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying that God prevents you from experiencing hard things. I bet with this many people in an auditorium, we've got stories that could be told of the hard things you've gone through. And maybe you're going through right now. So he's not saying God prevents us. What he's saying is the Lord takes those things and he allows them to happen. And he uses those things for his ultimate purpose so that you can say, there's nothing that exists on earth or in heaven that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen? Nothing. Because God's got control of it all. There's no circumstance that he can't hold. This passage always takes me back to think of a pastor I read about. I I like reading his stuff. And a few years ago, he wrote about his own personal journey. When his son was eight years old, his eight-year-old son came down with cancer. And it was obvious that it was going to be fatal. It was a life-threatening cancer. A friend of his wrote to him, another pastor And said, I just want you to know I'm praying with you through this process. Ultimately, the pastor who was the father of the eight-year-old boy, his son died. And he received another letter from that same pastor who started out his letter this way. I'm so sorry that God abandoned you and turned his back on you. That'd be hard to hear when you're grieving. Now, this man, who was the father of the eight-year-old, a great author and great pastor, very mature, theologically thinking individual, picked up the phone and called his friend back and said, what do you mean God turned his back on me? And he said, well, it's only one of two things. God has either turned his back on you or he doesn't have control of everything, so which is it? To which this very mature man responded this way. If God is not in control of everything, I have far bigger issues than the death of my eight-year-old son. You feel the weight of that response? If God is not in control, your destiny is not secure. You are not eternally destined. God could not control the circumstances of the cross. Jesus' death was an accident, and it freaked God out that they would kill his son. Is God in control or not in control of all things? So the things that are going on in my life, that are going on in your life, God's either in control or he's not. That means even though they can be really difficult to recognize, God can cause even evil things to work for good. So you find Paul writing about the thorns in his life. 
those thorns in the flesh that he wrote about. That's part of the all things that seem like anything but good from our point of view. Many things happen throughout the course of our life that seem worthless, even outright evil. God's telling you, in His infinite power, He can turn even the worst circumstances for ultimate good. I just want to walk with you down through history and do a little bit of a journey with you as we think about some of the things we know looking back on God's Word. Think of Moses speaking to the children of Israel who had been held in captivity for 400 years as slaves. God allowing those ones whom he called his chosen people to go under the boot of the taskmaster. And then when they're released, they find themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. God preparing them for a promised land before they ever get to the place of promised beauty, the place that they will inherit, God had to refine them and shape them and prepare them for his purposes. There's another Old Testament classic example. What about Daniel? You think that felt good being dropped into the lion's den? Can you imagine being among carnivores who are breathing their hot breath on you in a dark place that you can't even see? It's a dungeon. Because when they put the stone on the top of the cave, Daniel's trapped in there with those lions. By their instinct, they want to eat him, but God shut up their mouth. But what did it feel like being lowered into that cave? What about Joseph being sold into slavery by his own family members, sent into Egypt, a distant land that he never anticipated being released from, anticipating that he was going to be a slave all of his life, yet God allowed him to go into that situation so that he would rise to become the second most powerful person in the land of Egypt and save an entire nation from starvation. Joseph, speaking about that very moment in time, he looked back on it and said, you guys meant that for evil against me. Remember that conversation? If you know your Bible, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 50, Joseph speaking. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for what, church? For good. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. You may have already read the quote in your notes this morning if you pulled it out, but here it is for you. Instead of God turning down the heat, what God does is he turns up the grace. Instead of turning down the heat, he turns up the grace. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, in the midst of the struggle that you're going through. I know you've got a thorn in the flesh, but my grace is sufficient. So instead of turning down the heat, God turns up the grace. Why? so that we can embrace those situations with joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you go through incredible temptation, knowing that the working of your faith is going on right here. God's working in the midst of the circumstance. See, it's really important that you and I understand that God uses suffering to bring us more and more and more into the image of Jesus. 1 Peter 5.10, here's another one you're going to want to write down. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's good. That's New Testament. Let's go Old Testament. Job, Job 23.10, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's a mature person. That's a mature individual who recognizes what God's doing. 
Thomas Watson is a writer from the 1600s, a Puritan. I enjoy his writings. And he's a theologian who lived at a period of time when people didn't have distractions with television. And he said this, a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. That's right. Chew on that one a while. I can tell you that I am way more patient. I am way more kind. I am way more gentle than I was when I was in my 20s. Don't look at me that way because I'm thinking that's true of you too. Unless you're in your 20s. Uh, God has taught me sympathy. God has taught me long-suffering. Now, some of that just comes from being a parent, but a lot of it just comes from going through hardships. I've learned compassion from God because of what he's allowed me to go through. So God can use even the evil of sin as a mechanism for bringing good. It has to be true. If he says, I'm in the midst of all things, even sin can be turned for good purpose. And I'm talking about your own sin. If you're going to take that statement at face value, you have to understand, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you believe that he has saved you, you understand that sin causes you to despise sin. You may not be a believer, and maybe that doesn't matter to you when you sin because there's no sense of conviction. But if you're a believer, you understand that when you fall into sin, you want to do something with that. That weakness becomes really evident, and so you're driven to the feet of the cross to seek God, to seek His restoration, like the repentance Michael was just talking about. So even sin will cause you to despise sin. God can use even that. So the supreme reality of turning all things together for good is found in the death of Jesus on the cross. Satan brings a full court press, the best he has. The most evil that he can unleash is to kill God. So God's dead on a cross. But three days later, God's up out of the ground, resurrected again. Because ain't no grave going to hold him down. The ultimate evil is unleashed, and God turns even the worst for good into the most inconceivable blessing that he could offer to every single one of us. So let's take verse 28 again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. You see, it's really significant how you define good. It's very important, because what Paul's talking about here is not what I always think of as good. And the following verse clarifies what that good is. Verse 29 says, God's working to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, to shape you into his likeness. Now, with that in mind, the advances that God makes in your character, more often than not, are most effective through hardship. How many here have military experience? Maybe you're a veteran and, and you've gone through basic training. Okay, Bob, can I ask you a question? Was basic training fun? <laughs> fun like a heart attack, he said. If you're watching online, Bob said, basic training is not fun. Now, nobody signs up for the military and goes through basic training with a thought in their mind, I can't wait for boot camp. That's going to be so much fun. See, just ask the military. More often than not, what we understand is God can shape our character most effectively through hardship, and that's why the military has become experts at that. Because when we're going through hard times, it'll mold you. That's why we don't like to pray 
the way we talked about last week. God, do whatever you have to do, whatever you have to do to accomplish your purposes. Nobody likes to pray that way. You know why? Because we're afraid of what he's going to do, right? We know it's probably going to hurt. So our posture might even be, God, go ahead and do whatever you have to do, but please don't hurt me. God, do whatever you have to do to accomplish your will. Your will be done. That's a dangerous, dangerous prayer. So how does God work all of these things together? Look at, look at that phrase, to work together. There's a phrase that's used here in the English language, three words, but only one word in the Greek language, synergeo. And we use that word in the English language all the time. You see it in your notes. We use it as the word synergy. The business world co-opted that phrase about 20 years ago and started bringing it into the corporate environment, basically meaning this, taking the very best employees, different elements within their work environment, and bringing them together so that the whole could produce something better than just the parts. That's the concept behind this definition here. So let's take it into something we can understand a little bit better on a daily basis. In the natural world... And in the medical world, the right combination of things coming together will produce things that are extremely beneficial. The right chemical elements put together are really, really good. So there's an element that you use every single day. It sits on your table, probably at home or in your pantry or on your cupboard. It's called a salt shaker, and we call it sodium, right? But it's not really sodium. It's sodium chloride, Sodium by itself is a poisonous element which will harm the tissue of your body. Chloride by itself is a poisonous gas, and it will harm you. But sodium chloride put together, it'll make your French fries taste pretty good. And then it'll bring out some flavor in your steak. See, God does this with synergy, synergeo. God causes all things to work together. He brings things together in a way that we can't possibly do. John MacArthur was speaking about this very issue in Romans 8.28. I want you to see his quote. It is not that things in themselves work together to produce good. It is God's providential power and will, not a natural synergism of circumstances and events in our lives that cause them to work together for God, good, God is the one doing it. So Paul's not saying all things are good. It's not just some huge optimistic pie-in-the-sky statement. What he's saying is they're turned for good. God brings them together for good in your life. Now, if you've never read Psalms before, especially Psalms 25, you'll find that David wrote about this very issue. Psalm 25, 10. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. No matter the road that you've been on, no matter the mess that's gone on in your past in your life, no matter what you brought in the door with you this morning, Jesus will take that and turn it into loving kindness. Now, sometimes he has to interrupt your life in order to do that. Maybe you had a car breakdown this week. Maybe you got sick and you missed an appointment. Maybe there's some things that are interrupting your schedule. But you don't know that that broken down car or that missed appointment may have spared your life. God may have kept you from an accident, but sometimes he's got to even let you go through car accidents. Sometimes he's got to take you deep and send you through hardships in order to draw you closer so that you can look back one time, and it may be an eternity even, and say, 
Now I get it. Now that makes sense. Now I can see the pieces of how God's putting that together. And that absolutely demands being one who keeps his ways. I'll come back to that in closing in just a second. Moses had to help the people of Israel understand this because they couldn't see it. They're going through some messy circumstances, and it did not make sense to them. Wait, you've got a promised land waiting for us. You freed us from Egypt, but we're going through this? How can that be good? Well, look what he had to say to them in Deuteronomy 8, verse 15. God led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. So just stop there a second. If, if my wife's there, she's saying, I'm out, right? There's snakes and there's bugs and bugs that sting. There's fiery serpents. So this is not good stuff. This is hard stuff with Terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. God didn't take people through 40 years just to torture them, but to bring them good. So even when your circumstances seem really, really awful, The outward appearance is that, man, it can't even get worse than this. Scripture's reminding you, don't lose heart. Do not lose heart because God's working a plan here. Look at Paul's statement on the screen of 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. I really don't like it that Paul said it's momentary and light affliction. You know that? Because it doesn't feel so momentary. It doesn't feel so light. Sometimes it feels just downright brutal. He says in comparison to what's waiting for you, it's, it's just a snap of the finger. Now, when you read this promise, and this is an amazing promise that God has made, God causes all things to work together for good. You have to look at it and say, okay, what's the hook? What is the qualifier? Who gets this? Well, here's the answer. The verse answers the question itself. Those who love God, those who are called, and the calling that he's talking about here is an effectual calling. We'll talk about that a lot next week when we get into predestination. I know you're very excited about that. The the effectual calling in my life happened when I was 14. When God called me from darkness to light, from death to life, from the realm of Satan to the kingdom of God, we'll come back to that thought. Let's talk about those who love God. How do you identify if you love God or not? In God's sight, there's only two groups of people. Your nationality doesn't matter. Your race does not matter. What matters is, do you love God or do you hate him? That's the two groups of people, those who love him, those who hate him. So Matthew 12, 30 says this, he who is not with me is against me. You remember who said that? Who said that, church? Yeah, you're so timid about that. It's the Jesus answer, that's right. Oh, and if somebody ever asks you a Bible question, just say Jesus, right? <laughs> Put you in a safe place. Jesus, Jesus said that. So we have to acknowledge something. All things won't work together for good for everybody. You catching that? 
All things are not going to work together for good. The promise that God is going to turn everything for good is not true for everyone. There are things that must be true for this promise to apply. So Paul's saying, if you don't love God, if he doesn't have your affection, you cannot claim this promise. And if you are not called according to his purpose, you cannot claim this promise. So for the person who's in your life who has no interest in Jesus, who has no interest in the things of God, yet they've got this final optimism that everything's just going to work out in the end, God's just going to let everybody in. That's foolish because God's saying that is not the case. Things are not going to work out good for that person unless they enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because if you leave Jesus out, it's ultimately going to end very, very badly for that one. I'm going to ask you just to think back maybe a year and a half to when we were in Romans chapter 2. I know, a long time ago. But look at what Paul wrote, Romans 2.5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. He's talking about people who are not chasing after Jesus, who are not God followers. How we respond to God's activity directly affects our earthly future and our eternal future. Now, let's just put it on the street. From an earthly view, we may see somebody who's really, really poor, and, and they may not look prosperous. It may look like they're really struggling. Maybe you think, well, they don't have God's favor. And you may look at somebody who's really well off and think, well, they've got the favor of God. Things are going well for them. They look prosperous. So we got a guy on the street who's holding a cardboard sign that says, we'll work for food. I'm desperate. Help me. And maybe pulling up right alongside him is somebody driving a Beamer. And they got a suit on and they're headed to the office and things look good for them. But if either one, in either case, it doesn't matter who it is, if that one does not love God and is not called according to his purpose, all his experiences, whether it's really bad holding a cardboard sign or really good driving a Beamer, they're not leading ultimately to good, but they're leading to misery because the pleasant things that he does not thank God for, then he's neglecting God. Still, Paul says, you're storing up wrath. And the hard things that they're going through and they're not leaning into God for, Paul says, you're storing up wrath because you've got a hard heart against God. So what does it mean to love God? Well, you and I can't love God the way that we love each other. We love each other by doing things for each other. We meet each other's needs. But God doesn't have any needs, right? He doesn't need anything. He's God. He doesn't need you. And if you think he does, get over yourself. He doesn't. He chooses. So God doesn't need anything. So how do we love him? Because when it says we've got to love him, how do we do that if we can't meet his needs? Well, if we can't do that, then therefore the essence of our love for him has to be one of treasuring him, of adoring him, of doing the things that he calls us to do. Now, to be really clear, to be a Christ follower, to be a Christian, is never represented in the Bible as a static relationship. To, to be in a relationship, by its very definition, means things are healthy or improving, going deeper. At least in a healthy relationship, there's going to be evidence of that, that the person is deeper. So Jesus said, you want a measuring rod to know if you love me? Here's the measuring rod. Look on the screen. If you love me... 
keep my commandments. So the ultimate measure is how we adore, how we treasure. This kind of love is the kind of love that prompts you to follow after God. That's what he's talking about here. Am I pursuing him? Am I keeping the things he's called me to do? Now, the last part is this part about those who are called. We've talked about those who are loved. What about those who are called? How do I understand that? Well, I've already told you it's the effectual calling. Mark, when he was 14, responded to God's call. So you look in your notes and you see this Greek word, kletos, and you see it on the screen, kletos. It means to be invited or appointed, but there's something else going on here. If you understand the way that it's actually used in the Greek language, called means more than invited. It actually means to be summoned. So God has summoned every single person in humanity, summoned them to respond to what he's offered. The invitation has been put out there. So there's a summoning that's taken place, and you understand in a theocratic realm where there's a king, when a king summons someone, they have to come before the king. And in this case, we're looking for someone to make a response to the offer that's made. John Piper is a pastor that's retired from Minnesota. I wanted you to see his quote about Romans 8.28. He said this, God's call is His effectual summoning of people into a relationship with Himself. This calling takes place in accordance with God's purpose, that purpose being ultimately to conform us to the likeness of His Son. So in this case, whenever you think back to the moment when Jesus became real to you, whenever that was, you were summoned. And in a positive side, you responded, you received what God had to offer to you. So the response is positive. You heard God's invitation and you responded to it. So from our point of view, we entered into the relationship of our own free will. But from God's point of view, from His side, we were called into the relationship, but that's getting into predestination, so I'll go with you next week on that one. All this to say, the salvation event is related to the purposes of God, his eternal purposes. So when you read Romans 8:28, Paul is not saying, you know, when you're really good with God and when you love him a lot, Things are going really, really good. God's working things out for you. But when you're not loving him so much, things are not working out so well for you. That is not what he's saying. No, 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 no. We need to understand if you've been called, if you've been summoned into the relationship, you're in relationship with the king of the universe, and all things as a result of that work together for good all the time, exclamation point. Amen? That's God's purposes, that he would work together for good all the time, according to his purposes. So God causes all things to work together for good. Why? Because that's his purpose. That is his outcome. The purposes of God are the most important reality in existence. God called us on the basis of his purposes, and his purpose was to bring you into salvation. So you find Jesus in John 3.16 saying things like, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world, that you might be saved. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So we understand it's the purposes of God. Now, into that clarity, into that reality, there's this truth that's been stated, and it demands your submission. God says you've got to submit to the reality 
that no matter what's going on in your life that you can't make sense of, whatever you are going through right now is not by accident. It doesn't just happen. Both the good things that might be going on right now and the bad things. Last quote, and I'm going to let you go. Charles Simeon's one of my favorite old dead theologians. In 1833, he was reading this, and he said, um, this is kind of a question, not really an, an observation more than anything. He said, can they, meaning believers, can they ever do enough for him who so marvelously overrules all events for them? That's good. I can chew on that a long time. Can I ever do enough for him? See, if you read Romans 8.28 literally, it is easy to see why most people consider that to be the greatest verse in the Bible. Because it's telling you nothing is happening to you outside of God's ability to use it for good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So any logical thinking person who hears that promise and all that we've just talked about is going to say, I want that. I want that. I want that to belong. I don't want all this mess. I want to know that it's being used for a purpose. Well, what's got to be true for this promise to be yours? Well, it's very clear. What do you believe about God? Because what you believe about God is going to determine what you do. So what do you believe about his word? He says, I sent Jesus in order to bring you into relationship with me. And if you're in relationship, nothing can touch you outside of my care and my purpose because I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Can we just end by saying amen together? Amen. That is a rock solid foundation on which to build your hope. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we, we say again together, amen and amen and amen because of the truth of your word. I thank you for these individuals who have willingly given up of their time to study your word, to know you better, to go deeper into relationship with you. So that regardless of what hard things come, what good things come, we could praise you in the midst of it. We could be like Paul saying, okay, I'll take the thorn because you're producing a greater weight of glory. Father, for those who have not yet discovered Jesus, may not yet be in relationship, I pray, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would draw them, draw them deeply, Father, to understand you are a God who forgives and you give brand new beginnings. And every one of us who know you in relationship with you praise you for that because of the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.